marijuana smoking, experts point out, can make a helpless addict of its victim within weeks, causing physical and moral ruin and death. The first legally sold marijuana here goes to an Iraqi war veteran. A new insurance study out this week looked at car crashes in several states that allow the use of recreational marijuana. Barry Peterson. You're a doc. You've studied this. You've talked to the researchers. You're right. saying marijuana can kill cancer cells. Who taught you how to do this stuff? You, all right? I learned it by watching you. Marijuana is illegal under federal law. States have legalized recreational No wonder you can't open your eyes. What do you expect to open yourself up with this wrong stuff? What do you know about pot? You are listening to the Cannabis Hour, a bi-weekly radio program where we discuss all things cannabis. I'm your host, Jen Procacci. Thank you so much for joining me today. I've got some very interesting information for you to listen to today. I'm going to be playing a panel for you from the Emerald Cup called Holistic Practices to Control Pests and Plant Pathogens. On these sunny, warm days of early February, I know we're all dreaming of the gardens to come, and many of us are about to get started with our seeds and our clones. So while we're dreaming of those summer days in the garden, here's some great information to help us plan how we can holistically control our pests and pathogens in this upcoming season. So the speakers on this panel are Lydia Abernathy, Ron Whitehurst, Kelly Dunn, and Josh Sarvis, and the moderator is Heavy Days. And again, this is a panel from the Emerald Cup in 2018 in Santa Rosa. It's got some great information for you. So I hope you enjoy what I'll be presenting for you today. So without further ado, here is Holistic Practices to Control Pests and Plant Pathogens. Alrighty. Hey, hey, everyone. How are we doing? Pretty loud. So thanks, everyone, for joining us here for our chat this afternoon on holistic and organic practices to controlling pests and plant pathogens. My name's Heavy Days. You might recognize the voice from a podcast, but I also own a soil company in Australia. I'd love for you all to help me introduce our panelists. So to my left, we have Josh Sarvin, and next to him, we have Kelly Dunn of Dragonfly Earth Medicine. And to the left of them, we have uh, Lydia from Steep Hill Laboratories. And finally, to the left of her, we have Ron from Rincon Vitova. Thanks so much for joining us, everyone. So, I wanted to start out by actually picking on Lydia. I'm sorry. But I wanted to know, what type of things do you guys see at Steep Hill that are commonly causing people to fail tests? Yeah, we're actively seeing people are still having an issue with pesticide contamination, and that's in flowers and concentrates and all different types of cannabis products where people are still having a pretty serious issue. Um, Most of the compounds we're seeing are persistent chemicals that are not necessarily being used in the industry but have contaminated the environment that someone is growing in or there are other um, farms in the area where there's cross-contamination that's resulting in failure. Um, So that's happening pretty frequently. And we're also having issues with microbial contamination, um, especially something interesting for this talk, um, which we were speaking of earlier, is we're starting to see um, there's possible evidence and concern within the community that is using beneficial insects, that there might be um, a possibility that you're introducing different types of aspergillus spores and different um, species that are of concern to the Bureau of Cannabis Control for safety regulation by using beneficial insects. Um, This is not of course, categorically true across all insectaries, and we haven't done a large-scale study to prove this, but we have been seeing a steady influx of samples that would indicate that this is the case, and we are regularly hearing cultivators be concerned about it within the last couple of weeks. So those are of concern. Uh, And then heavy metals next year, which um, kind of ties into worm composting and compost teas, uh, and that will certainly be of interest once those regs hit in January. Yeah, great answer. So I think a good place to kind of start this discussion is around the idea of a healthy plant and what we can expect from a healthy plant. Do healthy plants generally fight off bugs on their own or do they need a bit of extra assistance? Yes. 
Yes. <laughs> yes, I think yeah. that's an answer that we can all, one we can all they answer. Can Healthy plants are typically assistance. capable. They can. Yeah. If you've treated them right and created an atmosphere, there, there is a lot of help you can get from, you know, from your environment. Yeah, so what are some of the basic elements of if someone wants to integrate their first kind of IPM within their grow, what are the first things, you know? Are they looking to introduce predator mites? Are they looking to spray neem oil everywhere? What's the first port of call? I would say that soil is, is the most important thing. The plant wants to grow in soil. It's a soil-based <laughs> plant. <laughs> um, so really having a good balanced soil. Um, getting your soil tested, looking at the microbiology in your soil, as well as the mineral counts in your soil, because, um, you know, if any of them are out of balance, that can cause uh, a lot of different pathogenic issues. So basically you want to feed the life in the soil, and then that life in the soil will feed your plants. So you would need to have a, a really healthy ecology to be able to support a healthy plant. So you need the healthy soil, you need the healthy uh, diversity on the uh, soil surface. You need some flowering plants to attract the beneficial insects. You need um, the um, uh, surrounding area to have uh, some diversity so that you're, you're supporting the whole um, um, predator, parasite, pathogen, antagonist complex, the natural enemy complex that will keep the, uh, the pest in check, in balance with the other insects in the environment. And so is that system of predator and prey keeping each other in check fundamentally the ultimate long-term strategy of a holistic practice to organic pests and pathogens? Yeah, I mean, definitely. I think that the most important thing that we can do is look at nature and really do as much as we can in our own gardens to mimic nature. And when we look at nature, there's an incredible amount of diversity, whether it's in plant diversity, whether it's in microscopic diversity, whether it's in uh, predator diversity, um, pollinator diversity. So when you provide different types of food for all of these different beneficials, then you'll be having more colonization. And when you have more colonization of beneficials, then you're going to rid your garden of pathogens. And knowing your parameters of your environment that you're working in and what state and what laws that you have and, and the information about the Aspergillus and stuff like that is, you know, super interesting. So it really kind of tells you, you know, what your parameters are because sometimes even spraying water towards the end can add, you know, too many mi microbials. Um, so, yeah, knowing your parameters and working within them are really important. So we seem to have gotten kind of off track, you know, even in organic, you know, seeing nature as the enemy. But, you know, we're working with a plant, you know, that, that helps us to be more at one with nature, that, that supports our health and, and our um, um, psychology and that sort of thing. And, and so we want to work with nature. Uh, we've seen the problems of, of seeing nature as the enemy and trying to beat nature into submission. We've almost won. And um, the uh, state uh, fourth assessment on, on climate change, the national assessment on climate change, the IPCC World uh, UN uh, report on climate change says we got to take care of all of the ground around us and, and increase the life in the soil to be able to pull the carbon dioxide out of the air where it's a pollutant and fix it into the life forms in the soil that we can then use to grow healthy plants. Which also, you know, creates a web that stops phosphates from going into the water supply. I mean, it's, yeah. it's a win-win situation on all levels. Yeah. So I'd love to touch on the issue of foliar sprays in regards to tackling pests in an organic setting. Lydia touched on it earlier in regards to it can sometimes cause people to fail tests. So I'd love to know, is there a hard, fast rule about what you should and shouldn't be spraying organically? And what's your opinion on microbes? I mean, anecdotally, I've heard people spraying things like EM1 and other well-established microbial products for IPM uses, and they seemingly fail tests for it due to things like CFU counts and whatnot. How do we deal with this, and what's your opinion on it? Um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's extremely complex because you're dealing with, in Canada, 10,000 microbial units on flower, and I mean, if you breathe on your plant, you're pretty much going to get almost more 10, than 10,000. Um, but it also 
doesn't go into DNA sequencing in the microbes, so you don't know whether you have EM1 or some kind of a lactic acid bacteria on there, or even potentially a trichoderma or something that's eating other pathogenic fungi. Those things can also fail your tests, so labs are only set up to do a fast culture, and that's how they get their microbial tests, and they don't tell you whether it's um, you know, beneficial or pathogenic, and and I think that touches on what you you were saying about the you know losing sight and not we don't have the support to create a fully organic system in a lot of ways because we don't have labs that are supporting us with our microbial sprays um, and to touch on sprays and microbials. Um, there is a lot of biological sprays that you can use, and I guess the one thing that comes up is just how does it affect, you know, more than just the target, you know, that you're going for, and does it harm bees, and does it still go into the water? So understanding biologicals and how long they live um, after you've sprayed them is important. Um, and then there's a lot you can say there. I'll pass it on, but just oils and whether to use them. And... <laughs> the... From a uh, biological control standpoint, uh, if you have a uh, leaf surface that's sterile, then it's an open environment for anything to come in, especially the pathogenic organisms. But if you have that leaf surface covered with beneficial microbes or just microbes that are hanging out, the uh, disease-causing microbes will have to fight tooth and nail to be able to get to the surface of the leaf, let alone to try to penetrate the leaf surface and get into the plant and um, uh, cause a disease. So we want to have a, a layer of beneficial microbes on the leaf surface, and so we can do that uh, in a complex environment, but then um, we're usually working on, on regenerating the environment that, the, that we're working in. We usually were working in you know, damaged or, or um, destroyed uh, e agricultural ecosystems or in greenhouses. And so the um, compost tea sprays, the, the commercial microbial sprays and stuff will, will help to supply the microbes that will colonize the leaf surface. And then um, we need to you know, see about uh, the regulators and educate them that, oh, okay, um, you know, just like the, the uh, bacteria in yogurt, the lactobacillus uh, bacteria, those are beneficial for our, our gut microbe. Uh, uh, gut, uh, it's essential we have them on our flowers. Huh? It's essential we have them on our flowers in, in a lot of ways to be yeah. able to consume that. So, so we need to differentiate between the... the uh, bacteria and fungi that you know cause disease in humans, and the and the uh, beneficial microbes that will help to support the, the growth of the plant. Um, and I'd like to touch on foliar sprays. Um, <clears throat> there's a lot of hype in the industry right now of people using a lot of different essential oils, mm -hmm. and just like what Ron was touching on, you know, a lot of these essential oils are volatile oils, and they strip strip the leaf surface. Um, and I don't think that's a very good idea. I think that it's really important that you have a healthy leaf surface. If you want to be doing spraying, that the only type of spraying that you're doing is a nutritive spray. We're down to that. We don't do any type of bug sprays or really pathogenic sprays unless it's just a whole plant, um, maybe a ferment or maybe even just an overnight tea. So say instead of spreading lavender oil or you might want to do neem oil, use the actual leaves because then your pathogens are getting a much stronger uh, message when you're making a tea rather than spraying volatile oils. I don't know how you all feel, but I don't really like my whole body covered in volatile oils. It doesn't feel good, and I think over a prolonged period of time, we're really losing a lot of the potential that that plant might have later on in its life for both yield, cannabinoid count, terpene, especially terpene counts, um, so I think that we just need to get a lot smarter than using symptomatic uh, ways to get rid of problems. And when we're utilizing these heavy sprays that have a lot of volatile oils in it or even the microbial sprays, um, yeah, it's just incredibly important to think about everything. You know, if you're going to drop a stone into water, you don't look at you know, the very first ripple that it makes. You have to look at the 40th ripple that it makes. So when you're spraying this on your garden, what's happening to your soil microbiology, what's happening to the environmental microbiology, as well as, you know, what we're all looking for, which is high yields and high cannabinoid and terpene counts. 
And to control the microbes, you don't need to have, put out more microbes, just put out the food for them. So people have found that just spraying whey or, or uh, uh, molasses or um, uh, dried berries used as a nutrient source, you know, will do wonders as far as increasing the, the uh, microbes that are living on the leaf surface and that will be uh, preventing the disease-causing organisms from getting a foothold. Which is interesting with biofungicides that have the single organism, right? So you're spraying one organism all over your entire garden multiple times a week to get rid of powdery mildew, and you've now thrown out the entire microbiome of what's happening on the leaf surface because you're inundating it with this one species that's going to help fix the whole problem. And then you get to the point where you're ready to switch to flowering and you decide, okay, well, maybe I should just strip all the microbes off because possibly if I leave them on there, it could result in some sort of regulatory failure. So I'm having people regularly ask me if it's acceptable to spray things like Xerotol on their plants. And if you guys have not heard about this, it's uh, similar to bleach, parasitic acid. And, um, yeah, it's, it's allowed for use on the plant by its label. It's not allowed for use on cannabis in the state of California from the Department of Pesticide Regulation because it has the word danger on the label, and so it has been excluded from being allowed to be used on cannabis. Um, but we do have people regularly ask if that is acceptable, and I try to tell them that you're certainly going to... It's the exact same thing you said about spraying lavender oil, except on a much greater level. If you spray something that's meant to strip organics off of hard surfaces onto the leaves of your plants, it's certainly going to be stripping off more than just PM and more than just microbes. It's going to be affecting the oil content and what you have got going on with within every fiber of what's going on in that plant to be applying something so caustic to the surface of it. Yeah, great answers. So just as a quick little follow-up for you, Lydia, do you ever see people testing and failing for things that they thought were organic? I remember a few years back, a lot of people were getting caught out by using things like pyrethrums. Mm-hmm. Are there any things that are commonly regarded as safe to use, which people get a bit of a nasty shock, or it, it, like looping on what Josh said, that maybe linger for longer than expected? Yeah, and it's actually really sad. So we, we kind of have... It's multiple folds. So there are people that are intentionally doing something. They're intentionally applying a product that they know they're not supposed to because they think that it'll go away. And then we have folks that the products that they're applying ha- happen to be contaminated with synergistic compounds like piperinol butoxide, which is not allowed by the BCC in many, many other states, and certain other compounds like pyrethrins that they didn't expect to be in what they were applying. And that's another thing which is really sad and is regularly happening. And then with the um, California's like very large agricultural industry, we do often have cross-contamination. It is an active problem depending on where your farm is and the behaviors of your neighbors. And so just trying to even figure out by looking at pesticide use reports what's going on with your next-door neighbor so that you can see how you're going to be negatively affected when they, you know, did a um, like a crop spray at 4 o'clock in the morning, you know, and it's like blown over through your greenhouses and you happen to have your vents open. That's a serious problem for you. And so we often hear these hear these discussions, and so I try to encourage people to make sure that the products you're applying, that you have gone with a reputable manufacturer for those pesticides, that you regularly check to see if there are any of the contaminant pesticides within the products that you're using. Any lab can do that. Um, and just really being able to educate yourself, because there's really nothing sadder than having a conversation with someone who absolutely that was not their intention. And it happens all the time. Yeah, and that's part of you know the, the certification that we created for cannabis, which was was, you know, done at a time when there weren't standards put on, you know, the cannabis plant. And we know that Steep Hill is doing a lot of sleeper sales and sleeper buys and Mm -hmm. stuff where they would find, you know, how much was contaminated and that was what was in the extracts. Maybe it it passed the test in the flower and failed in the extract. And that was a really big, you know, push for us to to make a pure, um, you know, product and, mm-hmm. and realize that there is a lot of limitations, you know. And we also recognize that we almost, in a way, have to be smarter than the system that's provided to us. We almost have to be able to look at these things that maybe the USDA or maybe we think they're OMRI listed and that they're safe, that I totally agree with you that you really do need to look deeper and just find, you know, that even glyphosate might not be, you know, shown on your 68 pesticide residue list, but it's going to be NALED or or whatever the you know the original ingredient and is so it is kind of time to get a little bit um, smarter about the science of things and recognize that the plant is a dynamic accumulator and it's accumulating through its leaves and its stalks yeah. and its roots and that's another thing about inputs you know we're getting alfalfa you know mulch and bales mm-hmm. coming from all over the place where was it from was it sprayed did it have neighbors so you, there is a long yeah, line there absolutely yeah and we know just to touch really quickly on the glyphosate levels it's mm-hmm. it's coming in alarming amounts. Mm-hmm. Um, things that are OMRI certified. Um, we're testing these inputs. It's alarming. It's scary. 
glyphosate is definitely something that we all need to be aware of yep. over a long period of time if you're using it either foliarly in different types of nutritive um, or even pesticidal issues. Uh, it's going to be going into your soil or if you're adding it in an amendment in your soil and then over a period of time you're losing a tremendous amount of microbiology in your soil which makes it acidic and then you're just wondering why isn't my garden performing and why aren't my, health, my plants healthy but you know it's an extra test you have to pay extra money mm -hmm. and I really suggest that everybody start getting on you know this glyphosate tip and there's a thousand other it's ones, you know, to come. But, I mean, you could go on and on. It's not just glyphosate, and that's a, a one that's well known. But, yeah, just it's a huge list, and it's different in every country. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Basically, we can't trust manufacturers. You have to really go down the long line and ask a lot of questions so that you know that you're um, doing the best for your plants and your garden and your environment. Yeah, fantastic answer. There's um, some interesting situations with the uh, old greenhouses that the cannabis use, uh, growers have uh, started using in Carpinteria, that uh, they've been on a completely organic uh, program, but then they uh, have uh, pesticide residue showing up in, in their, their product, and it's because the, the, um, the greenhouse plastic and the soil and it's everything it's is, radiating. Is, is just saturated with these old school pesticides that, uh, you know, a little bit of uh, one of these pesticides, you know, will, will um, invalidate your, your crop, so. I wasn't trying yeah. to cut you oh. off, Don. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, so to that point, if you're going to be buying, especially like the cut flower greenhouses down in Salinas that you're mm -hmm. repurposing for cannabis cultivation, Dude, beware, one. Uh, and then two, make sure that you have somebody that's going through and doing pesticide swabs to see if there are pesticides. Make sure you're flushing your air handling system or changing it out entirely and, like, looking at your wet walls and really paying attention to the environment that the, these pesticides might happen to be, like, penetrating into the surfaces because it will become airborne, especially with, like, dust particles, and we regularly find problems where no one was applying anything. There were no contaminants that they were introducing, but the environment was just so dirty. And, and then when I asked they had never cleaned the greenhouse. Mm -hmm. They just put all those plants in there and they never cleaned it because it just didn't occur to them, which is, you know, that's really unfortunate. It's very unfortunate. Yeah, okay. So, really valid point. I want to throw this one down to Ron and kind of work our way back, but I just want to quickly shift the discussion over to biological predators because obviously it's such a huge part of kind of the whole holistic control of pests. The first question I want to ask, people always ask me this as soon as I tell them about biological predators and how much I like them. They say... Yeah, but what happens to their poo? Mm. Oh. <laughs> well, currently they're not testing for insect poop on the uh, on the plant, so so we're safe there. Um, there might be some microbes in it, but <laughs> so um, beneficial insects and nematodes are included in that are, are exempt from FIFRA regulation. That that means that there's no uh, you don't need a permit to apply them. That uh, there's no residue tolerance and um, uh, several other things. So, so using them is considered to be safe. You know, with any pesticide, you know, uh, we can't say anything is safe anymore. That it's low risk or high risk, but you know, nothing is safe in, in the pesticide world. But the insects are, are basically safe, and so um, you can. Um, release a, a number of different uh, predator insects or parasites or pathogens uh, depending upon the situation. So well, spider mites is, is basically, you know, uh, the, um, the thing that most cannabis growers will see. So using that as an example, uh, you can um, uh, release a combination of, of predators. There's a predator that lives in the soil called uh, uh, Stratiolalaps, uh, Strat for short. It used to be called uh, Hypoaspis miles, so it has a new name. And um, that will uh, control the mites that, that drop to the soil to pupate and uh, some of the mites that are in the um, um, uh, bottom inch of the plant, that sort of thing. And then there's um, uh, Cucumerus, um, that is a predator mite that feeds on the uh, leaves of the plant and also helps with thrips, and um, especially the, the smaller mites like broad mite and um, um, cyclamen mite. And then uh, you can release a pr uh, major predator mite for the... Um, uh, particular situations that you're in. So if it's hot and dry or hot and wet or um, 
very hot and very dry, we've got a, a predator that fits into those those different situations. So moderate temperatures, the, the persimilis is really great, but it just eats two-spotted spiromite. So having some of these other mites, uh, such as the, the phalaceus, um, uh, Californicus or Occidentalis, uh, in combination with the persimilis will give you much better coverage as far as the diversity of mites and also help with the the um, uh, russet mite or um, you know, the, um, the areophyid mites or different kind of mite. And so having a combination of predators and going in early in the crop cycle will ensure that you'll keep it to a a minimum. You may have to uh, do some other treatments or put in more predators, but you know, having a base of a diversity of predators is uh, important. I was going to say, save ladybugs. I don't really find beneficial insects to be very gross. I find ladybugs to be in in hordes. You know, they just die everywhere, and then they leave their <laughs> little dead bodies everywhere, and it's all over the floor, and it's all over the bus. But um, you know, most beneficial insects, you're not doing like broadcast foliar. You're not broadcasts foliar, you know, applying them. You're not just shaking them out on flowering plants. People aren't doing that. They're doing that on veg. And then they're introducing uh, the beneficials by way of boxes or putting them on the, you know, the soil surface on cardboard or something like that. So um, you're typically not going to have, like, such a robust population of beneficials that it's going to create so much frass or, like, insect matter that it's going to have this, like, huge, uh, huge problem. And then from a point of um, just for lab testing, the only thing the BCC has said about this is foreign matter and materials. Excuse me. So it's like 25% of your visual field of the sample that we receive has to be contaminated, like visually contaminated with insects or bird poop or, you know, mold or whatever. But 25% is like that. That's where they have like decided where the, the safety line is. So it's very, I mean, even though it's not necessarily appetizing to all of us, it's not going to result in regulatory failure for the most part. Um, we're not looking for the things that those insects are going to be producing. And then it's much more con concerning to have a large-scale aphid population producing their sugary poop all over the top of your plants. That's more likely to cause microbial issues than introducing a bunch of beneficial insects, typically. Um, I think that we went from an industry of, you know, harmful sprays to an industry of, oh, geez, we need to get that tested. Let's now start bringing in predators. Um, and I'm seeing an overuse of predators, for sure. Um, not in that predators aren't helpful. They're incredibly helpful. But I'm seeing a lot of... Uh, farms, you know, maybe overdoing their predators, you know, really ordering it above and beyond, and then it's costing an amazing amount of money um, for them. So I think that the best that we can do is have preventative measures in our gardens yeah. from the very get-go, like we were talking about before. Soil, really good soil, really good environment. Do your foliar sprays and veg. Bring in your, um, your predators early on, like what Ron was saying. And one thing that we've been doing on our farm a lot lately, and um, it's something that we've been implementing uh, tremendously in, in a lot of our consultations as well, is heat treatment. So we've been finding extreme success with heat treatment and the following it up with predators. Um, I could touch on just um, one thing that you might want to really consider when you're getting predator mites is just where what company is providing the predator mites and there are a lot of GMO companies that are involved in um, selling predator mites and when you start you know getting into predators you're starting to deal with big ag and worldwide um, distribution and stuff so it's really really important to know where you're buying your predators from and you know, thank you Ron for you know yeah. providing a clean source for that and um, yeah so you know be, pay, pay attention to where you're getting it from and you know what what medium it's coming in what kind of brand that it's coming in and um, a lot of people will put their predators in like when they go into a flower cycle or they go into a certain cycle and, and you you all kind of touched on this but to have it in you know the earliest stages of your plant life just it stops the onslaught of some kind of a major you know um, wave that could come at you because it's never easy to follow up after something. It's always easy to stay in front of something. Yeah. So, you know, having predators allows you to stay up on it. Um, and one more thing I wanted to add is just when you bring in your predators to be, have, be able to have an environment 
and a leaf surface that they're really readily able to accept. If you've used sprays um, that can be harmful to your pathogens, they're also harmful to your predators. So your leaf surface needs to be clean and your area, it's sort of like the welcoming crew. You know, when you have guests over at your house, you usually like wash the dishes and sort of take care of it. So then you welcome in your guests. It's the same way as when you get your predators. You take care of your, your environment, you look at your plant leaf surface, and then you welcome in your guests so and that they make, can do their best job possible. You make sure you have no residues from any previous sprays or anything on there because that can affect your new populations coming in. Anything that you are spraying for, those other bugs can affect your predators coming in and starting plants from seeds really really help too and just having you know seed plants and and those plants automatically have a, a much stronger environment and generally the way that you start seeds is in an environment that might have some exterior pressures and creating habitat for other bees and other flies and soldier flies and things is really important studies have shown that um the essential oil sprays, you know, the spice oils, you know, like rosemary, clove, uh, cinnamon oil, that sort of thing, will leave some residue that uh, make it harder for the uh, parasitic insects and some of the predators to to be able to find their press and find their prey, their their food, and um, uh, so even you know the relatively benign. Uh, essential oil sprays, even though they're they're soft on our health, you know, do are disruptive. And then another strategy that we've been playing with is um, uh, something we call insect food, um, that you mix up sugar and dried berries yeast uh, in some water and then spray that onto the plant, and that acts uh, as a feeding attractant. You've noticed that when the uh, plant is just filthy with the sticky honeydew from the aphids feeding on it. That's when the ladybugs, lacewing, and surfeit flies come in to, to feed on the pest. And so you can simulate that condition with uh, just a simple spray of uh, some food that will dry in the, um, the predators. So, so you don't need to buy them, you know. Again, you know, getting away from, you know, purchasing inputs. We, we like to see uh, DIY stuff, you know. Okay, you, you can do this all yourself, guys. You know, you can make your own compost. You make your own compost tea. You know, you can uh, plant your habitat, draw in the beneficial insects, and then if you want to focus the beneficial insects, the insect food, you know, will be able to get them to focus on the plants that are having the pest problems. So, you know, we're selling products and we're making, you know, our, our keeping the lights on that way, but, but we encourage you to, to uh, figure out how to do it yourself, you know. It, it's working with nature. This is not, not rocket science. This is, this is, you know, basic gardening. Yeah, great answer. So the big question I wanted to try to get to the bottom of today is one that I commonly face. People will say, I'm an organic grower. I'm week five, week six in flower, and I've got an infestation. Do I have to cut the crop? What would you guys do? What would be your recommendation? What's the best thing to do in that situation, given we've already established that, you know, being prepared is better? If you're not prepared, what can you do? Well, I know um, what you just said, be prepared. So the infestation probably didn't start in week four of flower. Um, the infestation has been there for a really long time. And people often start to notice... Uh, pathogenic infestation in week two or three of flower because the plant changes what type of exudates that it puts into the roots as well as what it puts out into the leaves. Mm -hmm. So it actually changes the taste and the flavor of the plant when it starts to flower, which is a really interesting thing. So a lot of pathogens start getting the idea like, oh shit, this plant is starting to die. We need to colonize quickly. We need to do this really fast. So we do see the plant starting to show signs at that time. Um, like I had said before, we're huge believers in heat treatment. This is a perfect example of heat treatment being really successful. Um, and that means bringing your room up to or greenhouse or nursery up to 120 degrees. That's 50 degrees centigrade. And when you're doing that, you want to make sure that your soil is nice and damp, no different than when you go into a sauna. You bring your water, you bring your towel, you bring all your accoutrements that you need for that sauna. It's no different than preparing your room for that. And you leave it at those temps for about an hour. Mm -hmm. Stay in there and really watch the plants. 
And, and that's not too hot of a temperature at all for plants, but it definitely is too hot for soft-bodied uh, pathogenic insects such as the aphid, which is a really hot topic. Um, if you all haven't seen the aphid, it makes the broad light might look like um, a day in the park. Um, so this is something that we all need to get really hip on and be paying attention to as how we can rid this uh, pathogen that's really taking over a lot of our industry right now. And Yeah, I agree. Just nuke them. Yeah, but do, nuke them with something that, that, that uh, doesn't uh, have any residue. So we've been looking at uh, using hot water. There was a fellow, uh, James Nichols in uh, Thousand Oaks, that came up with, uh, had a patent that's now expired, on um, using water at 140 degrees uh, for about 10 seconds exposure to uh, uh, knock down the past, but uh, it doesn't have uh, plant damage. So we uh, set up an on-demand water heater with a propane tank, and, and um, so electric cord and, and then um, uh, garden hose, you know, to supply it. We can go around and, and spray the hot water on the plants. We're kind of fine-tuning the equipment so that we can get the, the temperature uh, just right to kill the, the insects but not the plant. So, yeah, there's, we're looking at the, the nuclear option for the organic world, and it sounds like we're, we're kind of honing in on that. And, and, and the hot water treatment, you know, be, be careful depending on how oh, far yeah. into yeah. flower you it's are. A great idea. You don't want to have yeah. any you know, uh, too much humidity. And when you talk about week four and flower yeah. and five, that was kind of what you started it out. You know, you have to be really careful of your trichomes at that time, and that's basically what you'd, you know, you'd be mostly concerned about. And, uh, you know, good medicine at that point to get fully colonized by something, it's really, really hard to, like, make it good, and all of a sudden now you're going to make oil out of it or do something that's just going to clean it out, and that would be your typical answer for something like that. But I know a lot of farms that just will cut it down because it's not worth trying to clean it up or putting the effort or try and find a thing um, to go in there. Um, and that, you know, that's a, that's a hard thing to say to someone that, oh, you have to cut it down. But um, a lot of times that's that's what happens and that's why it's really really important to use observation and be in your garden and not just hire your workout and not be part of your garden your plants respond to being in your garden every single day so you know to get an infestation overnight really probably doesn't happen and that's what Kelly was saying so um, you know to be able to just really be in there and be in tune with your plants and the leaf surface and the structure of what's going on is that if, if you're gonna say like what would you do at week four I would say do something at week one yeah. And, and or, or cut your losses, and that sucks, and don't ever do it again. You know, everything is an opportunity, even a failure. So we don't always succeed at everything. So, which leads to a good monitoring program will save you a lot of trouble. Yeah. And setting it up at the beginning. So if you are already a cultivator, I'm sure you have your tricks for what helps fix a problem. It's really important to have those steps written down. Really, everyone understanding on site what we do. It just starts to happen. We start to see an infestation. We start to see hot spots. Um, Having a plan at the beginning before you have the problem stops most of your staff from doing something silly that was going to make it infinitely worse from a regulatory safety standpoint, usually. There's no saying that the, the best thing that a, a gardener can put on his, on his uh, soil is his shadow. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Yeah, understanding your soil, because that's what the the plant puts out, whether it's strong or not. So understanding your soil going into it can help you with your pathogens. Wetness, humidity levels in your soils. If your soils are too wet, they can bog down your root system, which closes off the cells and the leaves, which allows pathogens to come in. So those are some of the things you can do ahead of time. Um, and also, since we're at a sun-grown cup, um, many of you are outdoor growers or greenhouse growers. Companion planting, huge, massive. It's not just a good idea because it looks pretty or it's a good idea because other people are doing it. It actually does draw in parasitic wasps. Parasitic wasps can eat three times or five times their weight in aphids a day. They love them. They're awesome. What is it that you can do to create a better home and environment for them? Look at alums. Alums are really confusing to pathogenic insects. So if you plant them in and around your uh, ganja plants, that's really wonderful. There's a lot of amazing perennials that offer full foliage and flowering during the whole season of cannabis. 
So have those around your plants as much as you can. And really bringing in biodiversity is what's going to, you know, help things remain in balance. Because one of those plants might get a powdery mildew quick before the other thing. And you, oh, we have something we have to do something about. Yeah. Yeah. Along the lines of plant diversity, uh, we've got some samples of uh, magic beans here. That uh, you, you plant these next to your cannabis plants. The bean plants come up, and they're a magnet for spider mites and thrips and whitefly, the major pests of uh, cannabis. And so they'll be there on, on the bean plants and not on your cannabis plants. So just a little bit of, of, of plant diversity is going to help you a lot. And then especially uh, you want to combine that with uh, something that's got a good flower that's got pollen and nectar available like fuchsia, for the benefits. Right? Fuchsia is a big attractor of, 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 of uh, russet mites and brown dill, mites. Dill all of the parsley family. Mm-hmm. Uh, parsley, dill, coriander, cilantro. Um, also, we did a, a pretty long research and observation of this particular bong aphid that everybody's talking about, some mm-hmm. kind of resurgence from, nine, from 1959. It's different. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, it doesn't really like anything other than cannabis and fireweed. <laughs> fireweed, and, and we really did. We tested almost everything. I've never seen an aphid run from brassica faster than this one did, but they do. Um, so, you know, let's get smarter than it. I know for sure. And, and, and we're all going to be finding out from each other. And we all have this wonderful opportunity to share information. The information that I have to share to you all is plant fireweed. And I hope that everybody comes back to me next year and gives me a long list of eight other plants that, the, that this particular aphid likes as well. But let's really observe. Let's research. Let's diagnose. Let's take care of each other. We have to take care of each other because when we're taking care of each other, we're taking care of our own farm. We are not isolationists. We are sharing. We are hugging each other out in public. All of these different pathogens are being passed. If you're having success in your garden, please share it because it's imperative even for your own garden and this entire industry. And this, I was just agree, one hundred percent. Yeah, we all agree. We all agree. <laughs> Which leads me to one of my favorite things about talking with Ron and seeing Ron is that he always comes with presents. So Rincon Vitova is an insectary down in Ventura. I'm going to do his pitch real fast. <laughs> and he brought up a bunch of inf- information, a bunch of flyers. He brought those magic beans. He talks about it's right up here on the left side of the stage. So when you guys are done, it's really interesting information. He lists out exactly what some of these uh, companion plants are and certain beneficials. And so if you're interested in any more information, someone who comes ready with it on a regular basis, Ron brought all that stuff for everybody up. Yeah, get down the front and grab some of that. We've got a minute or two, over five minutes left, to open up the floor for some questions. Ron can quickly add his point. If you have a question, left side of the room. In the meantime? Uh, Fireweed. It's an apolobium, if I remember right. Do do you know the species? So people can find it easily? Yeah. Okay, very good. I have a question real quick while everybody's walking over here. I, I run a pretty large-scale greenhouse operation in Oklahoma City for organic vegetables. And we have, right now, concurrently, about 4,500 tomato plants. And as our stage manager, Nicole, here, she was suggesting nematodes surrounding and and enriching our uh, greenhouse with nematodes because I'm having a consistent cyclical outbreak and infestation of aphids, then change to spider mites, then get them out of the way with diatomes, and then I'm by blocking a lot of the plant matter itself just by having to spray that and then I'm changing over to neem and trying to like vary it from neem to peppermint oil and trying to keep it all in and around but do you know of anything perhaps because they're similar in in structure and I mean it's nightshade but it's like do you know of anything systemic that is safe to use on both tomatoes and cannabis that is like a good soil um you know comes to mind because you might want to check into your soil and what kind of we're growing hydroponic oh we'll see that's a big part (laughs) of your problem it's a real big problem and it's insistent upon the owner of the farm and i'm like yeah we have a couple of rows grown in soil well that's when they say you know is your regenerative agriculture system scalable and someone says oh well you know look at modern agriculture and then you have this hydroponic greenhouse that's supposedly scalable when it's actually not scalable because it's not healthy and you can't grow in it so it's really hard to take that kind of like sterile system and then throw you know a biological or some kind of a another oil on that um, and make it healthy and, and well. So I would suggest going to soil. Yeah, healthy and, is as healthy does. And there's no systemic 
biocontrol agents, but you can look at the system. And if you're having problems with aphids, start with ant control. We can talk more about that later. <laughs> Hi, guys. So you probably know what my question will be, but just like a minute from each of you, uh, what's your pet peeve right now? What's your rant? What should we be paying more attention to, but we're not? Um, I feel like paying attention to the overuse of oils is, is a big part uh, in this industry. And, you know, they, what you put on your, your plant drips in, into the, the soil and can it affect your soil. And then plants never have a chance to really fully feel their health and get into their really vital groove. So that's one thing that comes to mind. Um, I think last year and many years before, I would say really understand the entomology and the background of the most popular insect of the year and aphid is the one this year and it's going to be next year and it's following the year after that. It's a tremendously uh, fast growing or fast reproducing and I really encourage everybody to do their best to find out the most that you can about it and share the information. So that's what we're sort of looking at as a big flashing red light Kelly, in this industry right now. What outcompetes that in nature? Ha! Competitive exclusion principle. What? Well, um, I could just just really quickly. Um, it's reproducing ridiculously faster than a normal aphid. We we watched it. Um, <laughs> so if you already have an infestation, there are, there really isn't much that you can actually do that's going to help fight that. So you're going to want to be able to get on it and get on it quick, like what we were saying. But 120 degrees heat treatment is unbelievably amazing. Mm -hmm. um, at 112 degrees, there's a bacterium inside of the aphid that makes the aphid sterile, so it can no longer clone itself. That's really hap uh, you know, healthy and, and, and a good thing. Um, but we're talking leaf temperatures here. It's not outside temperatures, so really monitoring that. Um, and 120 degrees completely explodes them. And that's really super exciting to see um, in, a, in a greenhouse. It's, it's almost like bring out the disco ball and have a good time while that's going on. Um, but, yeah, so I'm saying... The metarhizium, uh, I think I'm saying that metarhizium bacteria is also really interesting because it is a fungi that colonizes um, without disturbing bees. I just loved when you said the aphid earlier because I knew exactly what you were talking about. Um, so yeah, I love that Josh had immediately something he could rant about. I, it took me like the whole time to figure something out. Um, I would really suggest checking your mother stock. I'd suggest checking your clones. Yeah. I'd suggest quarantining anything you're bringing into your facility and making sure that when you're buying something from someone that you know what it is and that you're doing laboratory testing to see what's inside of the leaf tissue and that that's something that you're regularly keeping up with. Um, I see it hit people all the time, and I thought everyone knew at this point, so I figured I'd just say it now. Yeah. Be aware of gen genetic markers, too, when you're doing your breeding. Oops, that has nothing to do with anything, but... Meditate on, on your plants and, and the environment. You know, have a cup of tea, sit down, you know, just kind of observe your plants, you know, look what's going on in the soil, you know, do some soil food web, you know, analysis, you know, but, but just, you know, get in touch with your plants. Be present in your garden. Create diversity. Thank you for all you do, Alan. Thank you, Alan. Thank you. Thank you, dear community. Hi guys, I'm a medical cannabis farmer from Maine and I'm out here enjoying the cup and uh, I do all organic regenerative principles and we don't really Lessons. have the same same uh, pest problems that you have. We have very few pest problems, at least through the techniques I've used, but I was wondering, mainly PM and mold are kind of issues that we have and I was wondering what you guys thought of the citric acid-based sprays. Is that just sterilizing the whole thing, basically? Well, I could say something to that. Um, you know, it's causing disruption in your soil. And the reason why you're having uh, leaf fungi, leaf mildew issue is because there's an out of balance in the soil. There's an out of balance, um, or you've got a systemic clone or some kind of a systemic issue. Yeah, so um, we didn't, I didn't have any PM on anything except for like three plants, and then I used that on those three. Mm -hmm. And then it seemed to cut it down. It didn't spread to any of the other plants. Yeah, it's just getting back to that idea of, you know, what I was talking about earlier. It's a very symptomatic way to look at something. You know, 
uh, we have a whole lot of allopathic ways that have been really pushed upon us with big ag, big pharma, big education. And I think that if we can look at it in more of a holistic way to really find out what the root of the problem is, then you're actually ridding it for good. You're not just continually having the problem and not sleeping at night and just proliferating the problem by just not looking at the 45th ring. You're just looking at the first one. And so. also, yeah, noticing your environment around your growing area because that's the, where the, the mildew usually starts and is keeping all your weeds down because anything that it's like just with ganja and the flowering, it's starting to die. So nature wants to decompose it. And that's what the mildew is about. So just keeping all your weeds and everything low so it's in a vigorous state is really helpful. And we use um, a lot of uh, seawater and we don't go to the ocean, but we'll use like a C90, which has a lot of trace minerals in it. And um, the trace minerals and the minerals really kind of work with the pH of the leaf, and that really um, is, a, is a beneficial way to work with your leaf surface without throwing off the, the microflora. Um, and it also, you know, has, you know, up to thousands of organisms that can come alive. And early detection and wiping and just being aware of airflow and all that stuff is going to be your best, your thing. We have a ton, you know, a ton of in our, in our environment we have to be very careful about. Get your uh, bricks level up to 14, you won't have any problems. Yep. People love their plants. They give them good soil, and they put all these rich nutrients in, and then they overwater them, the, the soil goes anaerobic, and, you know, mm -hmm. yeah. powdery mildew, spider mites. Yeah. I was going to say citric acid. Persidic, too, is a, it's a con yeah, that's what I figured. That's what I figured, uh, especially on the East Coast. Right. That's what I figured. Um, so uh, there's a pH shift that makes the difference, and then there's a surface sterilization that makes the difference. Um, but usually, um, taking this from Reggie, um, one of the chief scientificers, now the president of Steep Hill, his favorite thing to say is that um, there's an issue with the genetics or an issue with the environment and that the combination of the two is what's resulting in the, the mold issues. Yeah. Mm -hmm. There's a basic uh, disease triangle, you know, susceptible host, the right conditions, and then, you know, the presence, then the presence of the pathogen. So, yeah. We have to build the microflora in our body and on Earth. That's the only way. Awesome. So, unfortunately, I think that might bring us about to the end of our time slot. If anyone has any additional questions, please come pester these guys and make sure you grab some of Ron's awesome information and goodies yeah. up the front. If I could give a big thank you to Nicole and everyone who works yeah. in the craft village. Yeah. And finally, just a quick shout out to my panelists for joining me. Lydia, Ron, Kelly, Josh, thanks so much. And thank, thank you. you all for coming. You can visit us in the teepee and ask any questions later, and thank you for all you do. All right. I'm your host, Jen Procacci, and this has been another episode of the Cannabis Hour. We just heard holistic practices to control pests and plant pathogens, a panel from the 2018 Emerald Cup. The speakers were Lydia Abernathy, Ron Whitehurst, Kelly Dunn, and Josh Sarvis, and the moderator was Heavy Days. That's all I have for you today. Thank you so much for tuning in. This has been a production of Mendocino County Public Broadcasting. KZYX, Philo 90.7 FM, KZYZ, Willits and Ukiah 91.5 FM, and Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM. You can find more content like this on our website at kzyx.org, and consider donating by clicking the red donate button in the upper right corner. Thank you for listening.